It's uh, 1 John, and you should have your Bible open in front of you, because that's the passage that we're going to have a look at. And we're going to pray before we do. Father, we know that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved other than your Son, Jesus. So we want to pray that you would help us to understand more of that as we look at what your word says today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is no shortage of weird ideas out there about Jesus. All you've got to do is get onto the internet and you can find them. Some of them are amusing, some of them are a little bit disturbing and some of them are just positively weird. Uh, There are quite a few websites where people are exploring the possibility that Jesus was an alien that he was from another planet and came down to this earth. Uh, Some of the modern kind of ideas that we've had have been things like uh, the Da Vinci Code, where Dan Brown wanted to suggest that Jesus was just a man, that he got married, had children and died, like any other person, that he wasn't really the Son of God. Uh, James Cameron has also come out with the same thing fairly recently, the tomb of Jesus, this idea that they've found where the family crypt was and Jesus was in fact buried there like everybody else. Now, it's not too hard to dismiss those sorts of claims. They're just weird ideas that people have and they don't really have any bearing on the evidence that we actually have in front of us. But more disturbing are when we hear weird ideas about Jesus from within the church when it's church leaders who are coming out with those strange things, when there are church leaders who are denying certain things about Jesus, denying that Jesus is God, denying that Jesus physically rose from the dead, denying that Jesus performed miracles. Now, there's no shortage of church leaders around who want to come out with that kind of stuff. And Please don't get me wrong, I don't want to pick on the Anglican Church. Well, not right at the moment, I don't want to pick on the Anglican Church anyway. But they seem to promote so many of those people to being bishops within their organisation. There are so many strange Anglican bishops. Probably the most vocal one of these presenting weird ideas about Jesus in the last 20-odd years would be this man. Anyone know his name? John Shelby Spong is his name. He was the Bishop of Newark, New Jersey in the United States of America and he's written an enormous number of books. Now, here is a man who denies that Jesus rose again from the dead, denies that Jesus performed any miracles, denies that Jesus is the Son of God and they promoted him to be a bishop in the Anglican Church. Now, I still don't quite understand how all of that works But you don't have to go overseas to find those sorts of people. Uh, The gentleman on the the left there, uh, that is Bishop Ian George, was for a long time a bishop bishop of Adelaide. Uh, And here is a man who denies that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He considers that idea, and I can quote him, to be barbaric and preposterous. Uh, Also denies that Jesus rose again from the dead. Uh, the man who was for a long time the what they call the primate, I somehow think that might be an appropriate title, the primate of the Anglican Church in Australia, uh, Bishop Peter Carnley. Now, it was never very clear whether or not Bishop Carnley believed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead because he would never answer the question. Things that he'd wrote earlier in his life seemed to indicate that he didn't believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead, uh, but was always very cagey about the issue whenever he was interviewed. Now, How do you come to be a bishop in a church when you don't even believe that Jesus rose again from the dead? 
But much harder is, how does the rest of the church deal with it when people believe these things? How do you respond when you're bombarded by these weird ideas about Jesus and they're not coming from outside, they're coming from inside the church? Well, that's why John wrote his letter. Because the people that he's writing to are being bombarded by these weird ideas about Jesus and John is wanting to assure them that what they have is the truth. Now, I want you to notice how John actually starts this letter off. The first two verses there. Let me read it for you. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Do you see what it is that John wants to stress in there? He's saying that he was there. He was an eyewitness. He saw all of these things. There's a documentary on TV a couple of weeks ago. You might have seen it, Brace for Impact, the the story about that plane that landed on the Hudson River and all of the people got out of it. Now, if you watch that documentary, the vast majority of it was made up of interviews, talking to the guy who was the pilot, talking to the co-pilot, talking to the people in the tower at the airport, talking to uh, people who were on the plane, passengers on the plane, people who saw the plane go down. Now, I can tell you what happened with that plane on the Hudson River. Now, it would be quite ridiculous for me to look at that documentary and say, oh, no, 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 that's not what really happened. Let let me tell you how it actually happened. I mean, those people were there. They were on the plane. They felt the impact when it hit the water. They saw the plane sinking. They were the ones who scrambled out and got into the life raft and made their way. I mean, it would be ridiculous for me, someone who was thousands of miles away and didn't see the events to say, oh, well, I know better. But do you see what John's saying here? He's saying the people who are speaking to you, they didn't see it. I did. I was an eyewitness of these events. Let me read through these verses again and put a little bit of emphasis on what it is that John wants to say. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. I mean, it's so emphatic, isn't it? He's saying, I was there. These people that are talking to you, who are giving you these weird ideas about Jesus, were they there? Did they see these things? Did they know Jesus? Because that's the claim that John wants to make. And he didn't see these things from a distance. He was there. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was with Jesus for three years. He was taught by Jesus. He saw the miracles that Jesus performed. He ate with Jesus. He travelled with Jesus. And he says, what I am telling you is eyewitness information. I was there. Now, immediately after introducing that idea at the beginning, he goes on to talk about the subject of the seriousness of sin and it seems at first glance to be a strange departure from what he's just been talking about but when we get to the end we'll see how the whole lot fits together. It's fairly common nowadays to hear people talk about the God that they believe in 
oh, the God that I believe in wouldn't send people to hell. Uh, The God that I believe in is a loving God. Uh, The God that I believe in wouldn't judge other people. Uh, You hear all these ideas about what the God that I believe in is like because it's really a God that I've constructed in my own mind. I've made up this God so I can determine. I mean, it has very distinct advantages, that kind of God, doesn't it? I mean, because you can figure out what pleases that God and what doesn't please that God and therefore how you need to respond to that God. But John's saying, no, let me tell you what God is like. There's no room for imagination on this one. He's going to state it very, very clearly what God is like. There's no range of opinions on this subject. There is one God and John says this is what he is like. Verse 5, this is the message that we heard from him, that is from Jesus, and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. John says, that's the message that we've heard from the beginning. That's the message that we have declared to you, our friends. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, what we understand about God has big implications for us and how it is that we live our lives. John says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And do you see what he says next? Verse 6, straight after that. If we claim to have fellowship with him, with God that is, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. If we claim that we know God, if we claim that we have fellowship with God, if we claim we are friends with God, yet continue to walk in darkness, John says you are deceiving yourself. It can't work like that. You can't do that. If you claim to know God, then it should be obvious that you know God. It should be obvious in the way that you speak. It should be obvious in the way that you act. It should be obvious in the way that you treat others. John says, God is light. He is holy. He is pure. There is no darkness in God. So if you claim to have fellowship with God, then you better not be walking in darkness. You can't claim to know God and yet continue to do things that you know God doesn't want you to do. People who claim to know God need to look like they know God and it's very embarrassing when you see people who claim to know God but they're not acting as though they know God. I saw this not so very long ago, uh, just driving past a church where a group of people were standing at the front of the church quite obviously belonged to that church, screaming at each other, yelling at each other, pointing fingers. Now, I couldn't hear, I didn't hear the conversation that was taking place, but there's obviously some big barney that's happened in the church. This huge group of people standing out the front of the church, screaming, and all I could think was, what would the neighbours be thinking? What are they going to think of this church? Oh, church must be on again. I can hear the yelling out the front. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? See, if you claim that you know God, then you ought to look like you know God. You ought to act like you know God. God is light. And if we say that we are friends with God, then we've got to make sure that we don't kid ourselves when it comes to the lives that we live. Now, he goes on to talk in verse 8 and verse 10 about what I think are two slightly different problems but very similar problems to do with our view of sin. 
Now, look at verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then in verse 10 he says, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. It seems that some are claiming that they are not sinful. I'm assuming that that means no longer affected by a sinful nature. And then there's another group who are claiming that, or it seems to me that this is the case, that they claim that they have not sinned, that they've reached a point where they now don't sin anymore. The sinful nature may still be at work, but they've risen above it, they've overcome it. I think that's the difference between uh, those two verses. So let me talk about the first group. Uh, People who are claiming that they no longer have this sinful nature at work within them. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John says that if you are claiming your life is unaffected by sin, you're kidding yourself. If If you claim that there is no longer a sinful nature at work in you, you are deceiving yourself. Every one of us is tainted by sin. Every one of us has that sinful nature still having an influence in our lives. See, our lives are a bit like lawn bowls. I'm not sure if you've ever done lawn bowls, but you send that ball down and it's got a bias in it. It's got a weight on one side and it will just move in that direction. And that's what our sinful nature is like for us. But it's still going to be there that left to our natural devices, that'll be the way that we'll turn, sadly. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that everything we do is always wrong all the time. I'm not suggesting that. But that sinful nature will still be there. So that when we come down to our most base person, sometimes we're going to be very strongly influenced by that. You'll see it in your temper. You'll see it in your selfishness. You'll see it in your pride, won't you? They're not things that God wants from us, but they're things that we can do very naturally and very easily, aren't they? Because sadly that sinful nature is still there at work in us. Now again, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that everything that we do will always be wrong all the time. And God's Spirit is at work in us to make us the people that He wants us to be. But we need to remember that that sinful nature, till the day that we die, will still be there. And if you think that it's not, you are kidding yourself, John says. If you claim to be without sin, if you don't think that sinful nature is at work in you any longer, then you're kidding yourself. And seriously, if you don't think that it is, come and see me afterwards because I'm sure I'll be able to point it out for you. Okay, It won't be that hard. But the second group, I think, are saying something slightly different. They are saying that they've now managed to control that sinful nature and no longer commit sins. Again, it would seem crazy that anyone is actually going to think that, but there are people around who do. They think that they've reached that point of sinless perfection in their life, that they can now control that sinful nature to the extent that they no longer sin anymore. I had a guy come and see me. I've told this story before, but when we lived on the north coast, a guy came, knocked on the lounge, on, on the house door, uh, wanted to talk with me because he'd had this enlightenment experience and ne- had now gained complete control of his sinful nature and told me that he hadn't sinned in any way, shape or form for four months. Hadn't sinned in thought, word or deed. I was so tempted to ask him if he thought pride was a sin, but I, uh, but I didn't. 
but he really honestly believed that he hadn't committed any sin in that time. And he believed that he would now, because of this enlightenment that he'd had, would be able to live a life of sinless perfection. Now, he came and saw me because he wanted to actually preach at our church and tell everyone how they can achieve this life of sinful, sinless perfection. When I tried to take into a few Bible verses that say maybe life isn't going to be like that, like these passages in 1 John, uh, he got rather indignant and didn't want to talk to me anymore. Um, but we need to remember that we will be people who sin, that that sinful nature will be at work there. Now, that, that doesn't give you licence to sin and it never, ever excuses any of your sin. But you do need to be mindful that that sinful nature will still be there. We will never overcome that, this side of the grave. We will never reach the point where we have attained sinless perfection in our lives. Now, all of that talk about sin could be rather depressing or possibly even confusing when you look at what John says here. Because didn't he say, God is light and in him there is no darkness? And if he's moved on to say that we are sinful people, well, does that mean that I can't have fellowship with God? Does that mean that I'm kidding myself if I claim that I have a relationship with God because I know that I'm sinful? Well, no, that's not what John's saying. And this is where the last two verses of the section that we're looking at tie this all up. Have a look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. What John has done, really, in these opening verses is just taken us back to the very basics of the Christian faith, hasn't he? So he's reminded us of the three most important things that you will ever know in this life. Something about God, something about us, and something about Jesus. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's great news. The bad news is us. We are sinful. And if you think you're not, you're kidding yourself. But the great news is God has done something about our sin through his son Jesus. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. John's writing to a bunch of friends to remind them that what they've got is the truth. This is the basics of the Christian faith that he's presenting to them. See, there's loads of nonsense out there about Jesus today. There's loads of people who will tell you why it is that Jesus came and and talk about uh, what it is that Jesus can bring to your life. I, I think the most disturbing thing that you often hear from churches is where they don't want to talk about the death of Jesus. Because that means we have to get into that whole sin thing and we'd rather not do that. We'd rather just talk about victory and power and success and all of those ideas that are part of the gospel message. I don't want to say that they're not, but they miss the most important thing. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And that's bad news for us because there's a lot of darkness in us. There's a lot of sin in us. But the great news is Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. We can have fellowship with God 
We can know God and we ought to live like his people. We ought to act like his people. But if we sin, God has forgiven us through the death of his son and he will forgive us every time we confess. And God's forgiveness through Jesus, again, it's not licence to sin. It's not permission to go and do whatever you want because you know that you can be forgiven. It's comfort for those who are serious about living in that relationship with God, serious about following him, serious about walking in that light. Three most important things you'll ever know. God is light and in him there is no darkness. You, on the other hand, are sinful. And Jesus has made it possible for us to be forgiven, to be made right with God.